If you would, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, to the Gospel of John, and we'll be in chapter 3 this morning. We had a brief break last week from our series in the Gospel of John. This morning we pick back up in John chapter 3. And we will consider together this morning, God helping us, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. John 3, verses 1 through 15. Please follow along as I read. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Amen. Let's go to God once more together in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray as we have so many times that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, and what we are not you would make us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This passage before us is the one in which the subject of what's called the new birth is most fully introduced and explained. This idea of new birth, of being born again, it certainly comes up in other texts, but John 3 is like the premier text in which the idea of new birth is introduced and explained. And it's from the idea of new birth that we get a very popular phrase in our culture today, that is the phrase, born-again Christian. People refer to born-again Christians. Sometimes we refer to ourselves as born-again Christians. You might hear someone on the news talk about born-again Christians as like a voting block or something uh, like that. Well, to, to be a born-again Christian in our day can mean all sorts of things culturally. Okay? There's, there's, there's several different um, connotations to that phrase, depending on who you're talking to. So I'll just mention two sort of popular connotations that that phrase born-again Christian has, at least that I discern in our, our day and age. Uh, when someone refers to a born-again Christian, that, that adjective born-again, um, many times what they mean is a particularly devout Christian. Okay? So, so, so Bill says, well, I, I'm not just a Christian. I'm, I'm a born-again Christian, like especially devout, like I'm an intense Christian. Uh, someone might say that about one of you, you know, you know John, he, he's, he didn't just grow up in Christian, I mean, he's a born-again Christian, like a bona fide, all-in, really devout, really intense, serious, born-again Christian. That's one of the ways in which I hear that term uh, used. And then there's another way that's, that's not so charitable, not so, not so kind, uh, and that is the idea of a born-again Christian being uh, something of a religious fanatic, okay? So you better watch out for Jane, she's, she's one of those born-again Christians, okay? A uh, little weird. These are the kinds of Christians who, you know, shout, shout the gospel at you or some sort of Christian message at you, and they're the ones who make signs and march around, and they live in communes, and you really got to be careful for, you know, the born-again Christians. The Christians are, but, but the, the kooky born-again ones, those are the ones 
uh, you have to watch out for. Uh, many of you would know, and I hope all of you will know after today, that's not at all the way in which the Bible speaks of the new birth and what it means to be born again. Because you take that first notion that I mentioned, the idea that a born-again Christian is a, an especially devout Christian, okay? Totally foreign to the Bible, okay? Because, because we're going to see this morning in John 3 that to be uh, born again as a Christian is not a statement about the intensity of your faith, but the authenticity of it. So to be born again means to be a Christian. Uh, if I ask you, you know, uh, are you a Christian, it's the same thing as asking, have you been born again by the Spirit of God? The new birth is the sine qua non of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, it's, 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 it's baseline, fundamental, Christianity 101. To be a Christian is to have been born again. And so the Bible has no category uh, for, for the statement, you know, you know um, Bill is uh, a Christian. You know, he's not really born again. He's not one of, one of those. You know, he doesn't go to church every Sunday. You know, he's just a Christian. I don't know if he's had a new birth or not. That's foreign to the Bible. To be a Christian is to be born again, and we'll see that this morning in John 3. But then that second way the phrase is used, the idea that to be born again is to be somewhat fanatical or obsessed, uh, that's not at all the idea of the new birth. To walk around with signs or to live in some sort of commune or something like that, uh, that's foreign to the Bible. Uh, rather, what the new birth does is it brings about inward personal, supernatural transformation such that we now love God and love our neighbors. It's a heart change. It's not to be emotionally exhilarated and particularly obsessed and fanatical, but it is to have at the heart level a fundamental transformation take place by the supernatural activity of God that leads to a transformed life. And so this morning we'll be opening up this idea of the new birth from John 3, 1 through 15 to get at what exactly it means to be born again. And we'll do so this morning under three main headings. So three main headings to open up these verses in John 3, 1 through 15. And they are as follows. First, I want to consider the urgency of the new birth. Secondly, the nature of the new birth. And then thirdly, the savior of the new birth. Urgency, nature, savior. The urgency of the new birth, the nature of the new birth, and the savior of the new birth. So consider with me first the urgency of the new birth. Look with me again, if you will, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now look down at verse 7. Again. And there we have the urgency of the new birth. Some of you may have heard of George Whitfield, a great evangelical preacher. Uh, he is uh, one of the feature characters in the Great Awakenings in the Americas. Uh, he, he preached all over the country and preached the gospel to so many large crowds throughout his life. Uh, this would have been in the early 18th century. And George Whitfield is said to have preached over 3,000 times on John 3 and the subject of the new birth. Now, I don't know if I'll preach 3,000 sermons in my life. He preached on John 3 and the subject of the new birth uh, over 3,000 times. Now, he wasn't a parish preacher, okay? He was a traveling evangelist, so it's not like his congregation heard the same message every week. And more than that, uh, George Whitfield sometimes preached five times a day, and he preached pretty much every day. And so you could run up those kind of numbers really quick. But nonetheless, the subject of the new birth was preeminent in the preaching of George Whitfield. And he was once asked about this uh, by one of his hearers who had heard him speak multiple times in a number of different cities, he said, you know, why, why do you go around from place to place just saying the same thing over and over again? You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. New town, new place. You must be born again. You just repeat that over and over again. You're like a broken record. You must be born again. Why do you do that? And Whitfield is said to have responded, because you must be born again. <laughs> he understood the urgency of the message. This is a matter of fundamental, crucial, urgent importance no matter who he was talking to, he knew that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. 
So to Whitfield and to Jesus, to be born again means entry into God's kingdom, and there is no entry into God's kingdom without it. To never experience the new birth, that is to not be born again, to be something other than a born again Christian in the biblical sense, means to die in sin and to suffer eternal punishment. If one's to enter the kingdom of God and to experience eternal life, as Whitfield said and as the Lord himself said, you must be born again. And thus the new birth is understood to be foundational to Christianity. It's actually the essence of what's sometimes referred to as the biblical doctrine of conversion. So when pastors and theologians talk about conversion in Christianity, that's synonymous with the idea of new birth or, or regeneration of being uh, born again. But don't misunderstand the idea of conversion in the Bible, what it means to convert to Christianity. It's actually quite unique when compared with the idea of conversion in other worldviews and most other religions. Okay, so there's some mistaken notions, I think, about what true conversion is. So one example would be, in most worldviews, most cultural settings, to, to convert to something is simply to change one's mind. Okay? So, so if I convert from being a Clemson Tigers fan to a Wake Forest Demon Deacons fan, it means I change my mind. Why anyone would do that, I don't know, okay? But nonetheless, to convert from supporting one team to another is to change your mind about the team that you like. Or uh, uh, suppose that, you know, last year I really didn't like pumpkin spice lattes, and this year I, I've changed my mind, I've had a change of heart, and I, I like them now. I've converted to uh, liking the pumpkin spice latte is this idea of changing your mind. Even in, I think, most religious things, although, though it's simply not as, as trite as those two examples I just gave, uh, uh, yet this is, in most religious settings, the idea of conversion, to change one's mind about something. Okay, so, so uh, you know, I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I had my, a, a change of mind about Buddhism. I have a different opinion now. I've weighed the pros and cons, the benefits, the truth of the matter, and I've changed my mind. I'm going to become Buddhist. Okay, that's often the idea in most religious notions of conversion, to change one's mind about a thing. But that's not at all what conversion is in the biblical sense, in the Christian sense. Moreover, that's not what Jesus says we need in this passage. He doesn't say, you know, if you're to enter the kingdom of God, you really do need to change your mind about some things, okay? Uh, uh, you need to uh, change your mind about politics and maybe consider becoming more conservative. Or you need to change your mind about maybe your speech patterns and where you tend to spend your time and how you spend your money. You, know, you really should change your opinion about Christian people. After all, they're not that bad. And so I, I'm encouraging you to convert to Christianity. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's calling for something far more radical than a simple change of opinion or a simple change of mind. Biblical conversion is not principally a change of mind or opinion. Jesus does not simply call us to change our mind about some things. That's a completely mistaken notion of what biblical conversion is. Okay, second mistaken notion of conversion. Jesus is not saying in this passage, and nor do Christians teach, that what's needed in conversion is the acceptance of mere religious therapy or spiritual therapy, okay? Uh, this too is a mistaken notion of conversion. Jesus doesn't tell us that what we need ultimately is to receive spiritual, psychological help and therapy. You need to be willing to receive the psychological and emotional and spiritual help that Christianity offers. You need to learn how to think positively. You need to have a, a, a proper sense of self-esteem and self-worth. You need to realize the power of prayer and meditation as a means of realizing your inner spiritual potential. And that's not at all what Jesus calls for when he talks about conversion, when he talks about the new birth. And even more still, a third mistaken notion of what conversion is, Jesus is not saying that if we're to enter the kingdom of God, what we need ultimately and most is simple behavior modification. You just need to get your act together and live differently. To be a Christian, to convert to Christianity is basically to accept a way of life and a certain set of moral principles uh, by which you walk and by which you live. That is not at the essence of what conversion is. Now, to be a follower of Christ does mean we come under, under the law of Christ and seek to follow him, and we, we do embrace a new way of life. 
But at the root of it, that's not the issue. That's not what Jesus is calling us to in the issue of conversion, in the issue of the new birth. I sometimes ask people, uh, you know, if, if you were going to appear before God tomorrow, let's say you were to die tonight and to appear before God, and he were to say to you, uh, why should I let you into my heaven? What would be your answer? You'd be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't, how often the answer is something like this. Well, I've tried my best. I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to do good to others. I'm not perfect. I'm not saying that. But on the whole, I really have tried to do good. Listen, that answer gets you nowhere with God. Well, it does get you somewhere. It lands you in hell. Because none of us can be saved by our works. None of us can be saved by uh, seeking to modify our behavior and just sort of clean up our act. We need something uh, so much more radical and lasting than that. We need God himself to do something in us if we're going to be accepted into his heaven. So to summarize all of this, if we don't need to simply change our mind about some things, and if we don't need to just embrace religious spiritual therapy, and if we don't need mere behavior modification, what is it that we do need if we're to enter the kingdom of God and to receive eternal life? What does it mean to be converted according to the Bible? And Jesus tells us in this text, we must be born again. What we need is something so much more radical than a mere change of opinion. What we need is something so much more lasting than anything that can be wrought by mere religious therapy. What we need is something so much deeper than outward behavior modification. What we need is radical, inward transformation and renewal. And that is what the new birth is. Radical, inward transformation and renewal brought about by the Spirit of God. That is what the new birth is, according to this passage, and that's the urgent issue in this text. To be born again is to be made entirely new. To be born again is to cease being what we were and to become what we were not. To enter the kingdom of God involves, indeed requires on a fundamental level, a radical heart transformation known in this passage as the new birth. And that's why it's one way to describe a Christian, someone who has been born again, someone who has been made new. Old things have passed away, Paul says. All things have become new. It's one of the reasons why this image of new birth is used. Something so radical is required. It's like being born a second time. It's called new birth. And in effect, it is being born a second time by the Spirit of God. Something so radical is needed if we are going to change and if we're going to enter the kingdom of God. And so this message of the new birth, this call for a radical inward transformation and renewal brought about by the Spirit of God, this is presented in this passage with a sense of urgency. He doesn't say, you need to consider being born again. I would recommend to you that you think about the new birth. I take it under advisement. Jesus lays all his cards on the table. You must be born again. It is the sine qua non of entrance into the kingdom. And you can't get to heaven without it. You can't be a child of God without it. You can't be united to Christ without it. You can't escape hell and judgment without it. You must be born again. And this is why Whitfield went from town to town to town saying over 3,000 times, you must be born again. Because he understood the urgency. Eternity is on the line. Entrance into the kingdom of God is on the line. And so I said this morning, from the smallest child in this room to the oldest man or woman, you too must be born again. You must. If you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, if you're going to be given eternal life, if you're going to spend eternity in paradise, you're gonna to have to come up with something better than I tried my best. You must be born again. God must do a work in you of radical transformation if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. So, so much for the urgency of the new birth. Now, secondly, consider with me the nature of the new birth. We get that it's really important, it's urgent, but what is the new birth? That's what I mean by the nature of the new birth, okay? Please look with me at verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. Now, Nicodemus clearly doesn't understand the nature of the new birth. Maybe he's appreciating now something of the urgency. Comes to this rabbi, he's telling him he must be born again, and well, that sounds really serious, but he clearly doesn't understand the nature of the new birth. It's his confusion that prompts him to ask this somewhat ridiculous question, enter a second time into my mother's womb and be, and be born a second time? Now, I don't think Nicodemus actually thought that's what you're supposed to do. I think he's communicating just how confused he is. Like, like what in the world are you talking about? Like, like, supposed to be born a second time from my mother? What are you talking about? I think that's more the spirit in which he's asking this question. And then Jesus responds to him by elaborating on the nature of the new birth. And I think there are at least three things with respect to the nature of the new birth that we can see in these words from Jesus. The first is this. The new birth involves inward cleansing. The new birth involves inward cleansing. Verse five, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now in opening up this verse, I have to do just a little bit of deconstruction first before we get at the meaning of verse five. Some people will go to John three and verse five and they will argue that, that here in this verse, Jesus is advocating for the idea of two births for the Christian. One of water, which corresponds, I guess, to baptism, and then a second birth by the Spirit for those who are really spiritual. So sort of two births, baptism by water, and then the second sort of higher life experience of baptism by the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's at all what Jesus is talking about in this text. And I know that for at least three reasons, okay? First of all, there is nowhere in the Bible that advocates for anything like a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is a teaching foreign to the Bible. The idea that as a Christian person, you await some sort of second uh, experience of the Holy Spirit baptizing you in some sort of uh, uh, mystical way. The Bible doesn't teach that in any place. Second reason why I don't think that's here in this verse is because it seems pretty clear from the context that verse three and verse five are parallel to each other. So eyes on the Bible here, verse three, Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And now look at verse five. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The verses are parallel. Jesus is elaborating on what the new birth is, the singular new birth is. He, he describes it as being born of water and the spirit. They're parallel to each other. What does it mean to be born again? One birth. It's to be born of the water and the spirit, one birth. If, if you said to your child, truly, truly, I say to you, uh, John, unless you clean your room, you're not getting any dinner tonight. And John makes some sort of objection, but I don't wanna, or, or whatever. And then you say, John, I'm telling you, truly, truly, I say to you, John, unless you put away your toys and make your bed, you're not getting any dinner tonight. Still referring to the same thing, right? Cleaning your room, just elaborating the meaning of it. And that's what I understand Jesus to be doing here. What does it mean to be born again? To be born of water and the spirit. That one birth, that new birth, involves the coming together of water and the spirit in some sense. And that leads to the third reason why I don't think this text is advocating for two baptisms. Uh, and that is that this idea of the water and spirit coming together to produce inward renewal and cleansing is a significant biblical idea with a significant Old Testament context. At a number of points in the Old Testament, we see this water spirit renewal of God's people that will take place in the coming new covenant age. In other words, the Bible talks about this singular experience of being washed with water and the spirit together in some sort of way of inward cleansing, of actually washing people uh, inwardly. And so I'll just mention two texts where this comes together. There's many texts in the Old Testament where we see this water spirit cleansing that takes place in the hearts of men and women. But just two that I'll mention. 
Isaiah 44, verses 3 through 5, now looking ahead at the coming of Jesus. Isaiah writes this, for I will, excuse me, speaking for God, he says this, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. And then the next words say the same thing, but substitute water for the spirit, or spirit for water. So, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This is an image of new life or new birth. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. In other words, in the new covenant age, in the coming of Jesus, there will be this cleansing that comes of water and the spirit, whereby people will be born again, be given new life, and they'll identify uh, with the Lord himself through what the spirit and this water cleansing do. Another text where this becomes even more clear is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. This promise of the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you, And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Washing that's brought about through water and the spirit, bringing about new life and inward transformation. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this verse, this idea of inward cleansing that's brought about through the new birth. And so to be born again means to be born of water and the Spirit, meaning to be washed and made clean by the Spirit of God and to be truly regenerate. It means to be cleansed of sin and to be given a new heart. This is the experience of the new birth. And I'll just testify, I think it's one of the most wonderful things the gospel brings. This idea of washing, This idea of cleansing. Because I don't know about you, I so often feel dirty and unclean. Because we are. Sin makes us that way. You know, kids, there were some kids recently at my house and and they were painting pumpkins, okay? And, and, And what happens when young kids paint pumpkins is they get paint all over their hands. And if they're outside and they touch a tree or they touch the dirt or something like that, now they have paint and dirt all over their hands, right? Okay? And, and, and kids, what do you have to do when you've been outside playing and you've got mud and clay and paint and dirt all over your hands? You go to the sink and you have to wash it off. You have to get some soap. No one really actually rubs bars of soap anymore. We squirt it, I guess, into our hands. But you need to wash that dirt and that paint off your hands. Get rid of those stains on your hands, right? Well, God is saying, in some sense, that has to be done in our hearts. Like dirt and paint and grime on our hands, so is sin on our hearts. And our hearts need to be washed clean by God. That's what it means to be born again. To experience this cleansing, this this washing that God brings through his spirit. And, And kids, I tell you, you need that. Just like you need to wash your hands after you've been outside, you need to wash your heart of all the sin that you've committed. And that can only come through what God does. God is the one who washes our hearts and removes every stain of sin. And that's what it means to be born again, to be cleansed, to be washed, to be made clean such that we can say, like 1 John 1, 9, uh, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of you are here and you can remember uh, a time when you were outside of Christ and you can remember all the filth and the dirt and the grime and the sin that was in your life. And then that feeling upon being born again and believing upon the Lord Jesus of being washed and being clean. It's not like we never sin again. Christians sin, you know that, right? But nonetheless, we can come to God and be washed again and again and again. And what's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth? It says our robes are going to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. We made clean. God says this in his word, though your sins be as scarlet. I'll make them white as snow. They'll be like wool. They'll be white. They'll be clean. And that's promised in the gospel. It's promised in the new birth. But the second thing I think that is integral to the nature of the new birth that Jesus tells us here in this text is this. The new birth is spiritual and supernatural in nature. This second birth, this new birth, is spiritual and supernatural in nature. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you're missing the point if you think I'm talking about something purely natural and earthly, like, like physical birth. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm not talking about crawling back into your mother's womb and being born a second time. I'm talking about something inward, something spiritual, something supernatural. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Very simple logic Jesus gives here. Dogs beget dogs. Cats beget cats. Whales beget whales. Rhinoceroses beget rhinoceroses. Rhinoceri? I'm not sure. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit of God, something supernatural is generated. Something spiritual is created. It's a supernatural work of God in the heart of a man or a woman. If you want to be totally changed from the inside out, you have to be born from above. You have to be born of the Spirit of God. To be born again is to be born of God's Spirit and to change, to transform in a supernatural way. That takes place in the heart of every man and woman who's born again. And that's why I said earlier in the message that the new birth is understood in John 3 as radical inward transformation. Now this is an incredibly fundamental, but nonetheless profoundly important point. When we're asking God to save a man or a woman, we're asking God to do nothing less than a miracle. We're asking God to do something supernatural. My brother, my sister, if you've been saved by the grace of God and been born again by his spirit, something supernatural has happened to you. You are a walking miracle. Life where there was no life. Light where there was no light. Spirit when there was only flesh before. This is something that is supernatural, which means it's something that cannot be attributed to some sort of emotional manipulation. How did this person become this way? How did they change? Well, it wasn't because of, of smoke screens and dimmed down lights and, and, and really emotional music. It happened through the supernatural interposition of God in the heart of that person to change that person, to transform that person in a way that can only be attributed to God himself and what God does by his spirit. So often when I ask people about how they came to faith in Jesus Christ, so often, they talk to me about signing a card or praying a prayer or having some very emotional experience when they were eight years old. And I wish they could understand that I'm not talking about those things at all, as sincere and genuine as they may be. When I'm asking about how you came to faith in Jesus Christ, I'm asking, have you been born again? Have you experienced something of this inward transformation and renewal brought about by God's Spirit? Was it something more than just signing a card? or choosing to walk to the front, did God himself do a work in you to change you, to transform you, and to give you this gift of new birth? Have you experienced that? Has that happened to you? Do you have any sense of what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.17? If anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. I'm not looking for a date uh, for someone to be able to articulate some sort of radical emotional experience. Sometimes the effects of the new birth are discerned over the course of months, even years. But I do want to know, have you ceased to be what you were, namely a rebel against God? And have you become what you were not, mainly a lover of God, a worshiper of God? Have you been transformed and experience the supernatural change that comes with the new birth. So again, opening up the nature of the new birth, Jesus says, first of all, it involves inward cleansing. Secondly, the new birth is spiritual and supernatural in nature. And then thirdly, and this is so important, the new birth is discerned by its fruits. The new birth is discerned by its fruits. Look at verse seven. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And many people find this to be a very mysterious saying of Jesus. What in the world is he talking about with the wind blowing around and you hear the sound and all of that? It seems very mystical or mysterious. Jesus' point, I think, is actually very simple. 
Keep in mind, people in those days would have understood far less than we do about wind and how it works. In fact, they would have understood basically nothing about the source of wind. Now, we know more today, but they would have known almost nothing about the way wind works. But I think Jesus' point is quite simple. He's saying, you may not understand the inner dynamics of how the thing happens, but you know its effects when you see it. Or in this case, you may not know where the wind comes from or how it's produced, but you can't mistake the sound of it when it whizzes past your ears. You can't mistake the effects of it when you walk outside after a hurricane. You may not understand exactly the inner dynamics of how it works, but you do see the effects. You do see the result. I like to imagine that as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, it's a particularly windy day and perhaps winds blowing in the trees and, and little twigs are blowing by. Well, the point is that Nicodemus would not say, as he sees the wind blowing in the trees and the, the, the twigs blowing by, like, ah, see, I observe there a shift in atmospheric pressure brought about by the rotation of the earth on its axis and, and differential heating between the equator and the poles or something like that. I don't even know if that's accurate, okay? He wouldn't say that. It's, I see wind blowing in the trees. I hear wind blowing by my ears. It was particularly windy at my house last night. The wind woke me up uh, because over our house hangs uh, some tall trees and when it's really windy, acorns fall on the roof and they wake me up. But I heard the effects, the effect of the wind. I didn't see the wind. Can't see, wind isn't a visible thing, but you know its effects when you see it. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. Jesus' point is you may not understand the inner dynamics of how new birth happens. I can't see it happen in your heart. I've never seen the new birth take place, but I have seen its effects. You know when new birth has taken place. The new birth is discerned by its fruits. The new birth inevitably will result in a transformed life, and it will be unmistakable. The new birth is discerned by its fruits. What does the new birth produce? People who love God and people who love their neighbors. People who were formerly rebels against God, now they're lovers of God and they delight to worship Him. This is what we look for in people who are born again. True, you can't see the inward cleansing that's taking place. You can't see God doing this work by His Spirit. But you can see the effect of the same. And the effect is a transformed life devoted to God. And this is one of the things we have written in our Constitution. If someone wants to become a member at Emmanuel Church, this is what we have written in terms of the eligibility of membership. Any person shall be eligible for membership in this church who, one, professes repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and most people just stop there. So if you come to the front and you say, I want to join the church, and sure, I profess repentance and faith, you're in. No evaluation of the life that you live or if you've transformed, right? That's, that's how most people work, okay? We say in the Constitution, any person shall be eligible for membership in this church who professes repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and manifests a life transformed by the power of Christ. Now, why do we have that in there? Because we're just a manual church and we're really, really picky and we read a lot of Nine Marks books, you know, and that's just the way we are. No. No, no, no. It's in there because Jesus says it should be in there. It's in there because I don't want to break the ninth commandment by bearing false witness. It's in there because I don't want to lull unbelievers into thinking they've been born again and once they're in the membership of the church, make them twice as much a son of hell. It's in there because we take seriously Jesus' words in Matthew 18, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's in there because John 3 tells us this is the fruit of the new birth. A transformed life. Radical transformation brought about by the Spirit of God. Wherever new birth exists, its fruits will be manifest. And what is the fruit? A transformed life of devotion to God. People who are born again do actually supernaturally change. And I love this. I hope that we see this over decades and generations here at Emmanuel Church. Like that, this guy here, man, he was a total jerk five years ago. But after he was born again, came to faith in Jesus Christ, he completely changed. 
Before he was harsh and bitter and angry, now he's gentle and tender-hearted toward others. He's marked by kindness and, and love and gentleness toward his neighbors. You know, that young lady, she was so vain and so caught up in herself, but you know what? Three years ago, she came to Christ and was born again, and ever since, she's become servant-hearted and possesses a quiet and gentle spirit which is pleasing in the sight of God. That young man used to sit in church with his arms folded, staring at the ground. And now he's singing, hands raised, because he delights in the worship of God. What brings that about? It could only be the new birth. It could only be the Spirit of God to change someone like that. I used to live in addiction and perversion and sin and darkness, but after being born again by the Spirit of God, I became a devoted lover of God and of neighbor. I became one devoted to pursuing holiness and pursuing Christ's likeness. My life was completely transformed. How did that happen? Because God did something. God transformed a man. He transformed a woman. Remember this. A transformed life is the vindication of new birth. How do we know the thing is there? We see its fruits. And you ever notice this in your own heart? Some of you, you can look back on lives of sin and lives of rebellion against God, prolonged seasons of life where you were lost and unregenerate. Like where you used to maybe explode and blow up and lash out. Now, after becoming a Christian, you respond in patience and gentleness. You ever have those moments like, like you check your heart, like where did that come from? I didn't used to be like that. I used to just explode with cussing and cursing and anger and that's how we did it in my house, but now I'm, that's not there. That impulse seems to be gone and more than that, I wanna be patient. Where did that come from? And then Jesus says to us, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And then you stand back and you rejoice in God that he's changed you in a way that's unmistakable, in a way you can't attribute to the influence of parents or some sort of cultural peer pressure. God has done a work inwardly in your heart. You might remember how you used to spend Saturday night. And man, you can remember the hangover of Sunday morning. But the last 10 years have been completely different. And I know I didn't just turn over a new leaf. Where did that come from? How did that happen? Why am I living now for things I never used to live for before? And what was so sweet to me and wonderful to me is now bitter in my mouth. I don't want it. I want this How did that happen? And Jesus says to us, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. And you just stand back and you bless God for what he's wrought. The change he's brought about. The transformation he's brought about. Well, there you have it, the nature of the new birth. It involves inward cleansing. It is spiritual and supernatural in nature. It is discerned by its fruits. Now, thirdly and finally, and far more briefly, we've considered the urgency of the new birth, the nature of the new birth. Thirdly, consider with me the savior of the new birth. Verse nine, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Nicodemus is still perplexed at this point with Jesus' teaching on the new birth. However, Jesus indicates You as the teacher of Israel, you should know a little bit about this. Then Jesus says in verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Now there's a lot of speculation as to why Jesus uses the third person there. Why does he shift into we at this point? I think he's just trying to sort of puncture uh, Nicodemus's pretensions at the start of this passage. Uh, Rabbi, we know that uh, you're a teacher sent from God. We, we do. We'll just come out and stand on his own two feet. We, we, we've, we've looked at the evidence. We've considered this. And we believe, uh, we believe you're, you're a teacher doing some of God's works here. 
And Jesus assumes that same pretentious posture and says, yeah, we know a thing or two as well, we do. Okay? Don't hide, Nicodemus. This is about me and you, and this is about the truth. And he shifts right away back into the first person. And Jesus now speaks of who he himself is, and he reveals his authority, which is greater than that of Nicodemus as a teacher. Both were rabbis, but Jesus is shown to be the superior, better qualified rabbi, if you will. And he speaks of what he knows firsthand. He speaks of what he himself has seen. And yet he says, you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now I think there's no way of getting around the fact that the earthly things are the new birth. Not in that it's an earthly work, but it happens in the realm of time and space in the earth. And Jesus is in effect saying, if you don't understand this fundamental doctrine about the new birth that's supposed to happen in the life of every follower of God, what if I were to take you into the throne room of God and, and reveal to you the mysteries of God's providence and talk about the mysteries of the divine nature? You can't even understand this fundamental doctrine of the new birth. How can you understand heavenly things if I tell you about that? And Jesus then tells Nicodemus precisely how it is that he, Jesus, has this authority to teach. For he is the only one who has been into heaven with God and has then descended to the earth. Jesus speaks out of the overflow of his experience. And then we arrive at verse 14. Very peculiar verse. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What on earth is Jesus talking about? He's referencing an event that took place in Israel's history that's recorded in Numbers 21, verses six through nine. Very short account, I'll read it for you, okay? The people of Israel are rebelling against God, and then we read this, Numbers 21, verse six, then the Lord, sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpent from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And that's it. That's it. There's there's no more material on this. Not really the verse I would go to to ground the teaching of the new birth. I don't know if that seems somewhat mysterious to you as well. But if we read it sympathetically, I think we could appreciate what Jesus is doing here. There's some parallels I think he's drawing three in particular. First of all, the people in Numbers 21 were perishing. They were dying. They'd been bitten by snakes and they were perishing. Death was coming for them. What's the parallel in John 3? The world is perishing through sin. Numbers 21, it was a snake bite. In John 3, it's the sin nature by which we will perish if we're outside of Christ. Second parallel. This serpent in Numbers 21 had to be lifted up on a pole. Gonna lift up the serpent on a pole, we're gonna look to that serpent. And Jesus too had to be lifted up on another pole of sorts. A bloody cross at a disgusting place called the skull. He too was lifted up on a pole. Third parallel, the Israelites had to look at the serpent to be healed and to be given new life. They had to look at the provision that God had made. And so it is with Jesus. For all those who look to him in faith, he becomes their savior and he grants them new life, even eternal life. In either case, whether it's looking at the serpent in Numbers 21 or looking at Jesus today, you have to look at the provision that God makes. And the serpent, we know this in the Old Testament, is a symbol of cursing, right? Jesus is said to have been made a curse for us. And as he's lifted up, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, right? Scriptures say. 
God is pleased to pour out his wrath on him so that sinners like us can be saved. We can be healed too of the snake bite of sin by looking to him on that pole, that cross where he died for sinners. Now we see the connection. Now a final question. What's the connection between this and the new birth? Why introduce this Old Testament parallel after teaching about the new birth? And this is it. The new birth is grounded in what God has done in Christ. And it can only be received by faith in the provision that God has made, namely his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who dies for our sin. By sending him into the world and lifting him up, now all who look to him in faith and repentance will experience new birth. So maybe you're like Nicodemus, and you've considered all the things I've conveyed and hopefully been faithful to Christ's word in John 3 that he's conveyed about the urgency of the new birth and the nature of the new birth. And with Nicodemus, you're just like, how can these things be? What do I do with this? Jesus says it's very simple. You have to arrive at the savior of the new birth. You have to look at the provision God has made. You're not going to be born again just by thinking really hard about it or really zeroing in and focusing in on trying to have some exhilarating emotional experience. Jesus says, hey, hey, look at me. Isaiah 45, 2, look to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. Jesus is saying that. Look to the provision that God has made in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And his promise is that you will be saved and inherit eternal life. You'll be born again to a living hope and experience this inward transformation and change and renewal and cleansing. I suspect that every single man, woman, boy or girl is born into this world recognizing something's wrong. There's something broken about us. We need to change. Famous poet, I think, spoke for everybody when he wrote, offer a man to rise in me that the man I am may cease to be. We all know something's wrong. We all know we need to change. And I'm here to tell you today, change really is possible. In a world full of cynics and medicines and antibiotics to drug us up and try to bring about the sort of effects we wish to have, real change is possible. But it doesn't come about through any sort of natural means. It comes about through the Spirit of God doing something supernatural in your heart to transform and to change you. And that transformation takes place by looking to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and believing upon him. Accepting the provision that God has made in his Son. And I promise you, you will change. God will change you. He'll transform you. And you'll be like so many others here who have so many stories of transformation about ways they used to live and thoughts they used to think and patterns they used to observe. And now everything has become new through what the Lord Jesus has done in the new birth. If you want to be born again, I call you to come to the Lord Jesus in faith. Let's pray.